Digital Amicus presents the Obiter Podcast. Hello, this is Digital Amicus with another segment of the Obiter Podcast. Today, I am joined by Ali Gul Shah and Munib Aga Khan Baloch. Thank you both for joining me today. Yes, yeah, sure. Likewise, likewise, Rahim. <clears throat> thank you. Uh, thank you, Rahim. Um, I would start by introducing myself. This is Munib here. I am the student of third year LLB of University of uh, University of London. I'm currently studying at Thiemesa School of Law. I am also the member. I'm also I'm the member of International Bar Association, International Law Association, International Monarchist League, Australian Monarchist League, and I am currently serving. As the president of United Nations Association of Pakistan, Themis chapter, and I am also serving as the fellow of the Royal Society of Arts from the Pakistan to United Kingdom. That's excellent, Munib. Um, what about you, Ali? Please do introduce yourself as well. Yeah, as far as yeah, sure, sure, sure. So I'll start by saying that obviously, as Rahim, you have introduced me. My name is Said. Ali Gulshah Bukhari, that's my full name. So, yep, I'm a law student as well, currently enrolled in the University of London and uh, doing the Themis School of Law. I am also a member of International Bar Association, but I'm not a member of other institutions as Munib is. So, yep, I'm going to stop at that. That's perfectly fine. Would you like to tell us why you joined the legal profession and why you are actively pursuing uh, a degree in law? Mm-hmm. What you intend to do with it? Sure, 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 sure. Sure, yeah, yeah. So it's yeah, it's uh, it really started when I was a kid. You know, I was just you know uh, all into the stuff about Avengers and Justice League. I was all obsessed with this uh, stuff about you know giving people the justice and all that. So I. You know, as I was growing up, I just found out that, you know, justice or fear, all that stuff, it's, it's not delineated. So, you know, it has its system, the regulations. So I was thinking, I was curious, all right, so what do I have to do in order to bring the word justice into practicality? And I found out that, you know, I can pursue law as a career, as, you know, as being a student. So I got into that, you know, and uh, other things came Came, uh, came in. So it wasn't just for the one purpose. So I wanted to know the law myself, wanted to be aware of a citizen of the, my, my own country. I wanted to know how I stand in front of the world as being a human. So yeah, it's all there. That's the reason why I was interested in this, in this noble profession that I consider, in my opinion, it's the noblest profession of all. I agree. Well, it's I actually the a law very, very noble profession. And you know, the- Go on, continue, continue. Yes. Well, I joined the uh, uh, I joined the law degree. The the core perspective, the core m- motivation behind me joining the law uh, University of London's law degree, is the is my aim and ambition to serve Her Majesty as her counsel. There in the United Kingdom, you have you have the position of the Queen's counsel. A, a law a, 
a lawyer or a barrister, a barrister or a solicitor can achieve this position of the Queen's Council once they are uh, once they have practiced uh, practiced around ten years in England, in in England, Wales, Northern Ireland, uh, Northern Ireland or Scotland for ten years. Then after that, they apply through they go through a procedure and they submit their application to the Lord uh, to the Lord Chancellor. And Lord Chancellor views this application through uh, through a board of members, and then this person gets selected and uh, appointed as Her Majesty's Council. As Her Majesty's Council, the core job of the Council of the Queen is to represent the is to represent the Crown in the different cases, uh, both uh, both at home and at abroad. So that's what my core uh, motivation was before I joined the law degree. And this is how, this is what I will be pursuing towards. Once I'm done with my LLB, I'll go towards uh, bar practice training course. Then I'll go forward with an LLM in public international law. Then uh, then inshallah, I'll, I'll move forward to a PhD in law. And then after that, I would, and simultaneously with all of this, I will, after once my bar has, uh, bar practice training course has ended, I would simultaneously practice along with my academic. That is actually incredibly ambitious of you, Munib. I really like that you have all of this sorted out and planned out. And, you know, I mean, these are very, very high targets to achieve. And, you know, being a student of law, you know, we're privileged to have been given so many opportunities and we're privileged to have been given so many different, you know, chances to take and so many different opportunities to make the most of. And, you know, I think our responsibility definitely extends to, you know, making sure that um, we're fulfilling our academic commitments and looking beyond the horizon of, you know, what's generally accepted as a long-term goal for the legal profession. And that's really, really noble of you. And, um, you know, while we're on the topic of a legal profession or our legal education for that matter, you know, being students of the LLB degree, we are obviously very familiar to a certain extent of the English legal system. You know, the jurisprudence that they have, which is predominantly parliamentary. And um, it's a very fascinating contrast to the local jurisprudence of Pakistan and many other legal systems. And it's something I wanted to talk about. Um, you know, I I was reading up a book that was written by one of my favorite uh, clinical psychologists um, named Dr. Jordan Peterson. And in that book, he actually mentioned that mm. the common law of England and Wales is one of the greatest achievements of Western civilization. I never really gave it much thought, but, you know, being a student of the LLB and with what I know of the legal system of the United Kingdom and what I know of that more parliamentary sort of common law-centric system of jurisprudence that they have, it, it did make a lot of sense to me, and there is a lot of truth in that statement, and I do believe quite strongly that the common law of England and Wales is one of the greatest achievements of Western civilization from a purely systematic point of view and just just with regard to how it's developed over time and how and how so many different shifts and so many different changes, be them societal or be them legal even, just how they're applicable and just how well a system like that meshes with all that. I wanted to hear what both of you have to say about that and definitely would like to see what kind of discussion we can get out of this. Let's start with you, Munib. What do you think? Well, I definitely agree with you, Rahim. No doubt, the English common law is the greatest achievement of the Western civilization. I would I would rather paraphrase it a little that the common law is the greatest achievement of the common uh, of the entire Commonwealth uh, Commonwealth of Nations. 
because this uh, the, this common law has not only that has not only inspired the nations uh, that the, the nations that are that were at some time part of the British Empire, but the other nations that are outside even even the Commonwealth of Nations. So I would uh, I would start with a brief history of the common law system that how did it evolve? How did it actually came into existence? What was the need? And how did it evolve? So if we are discussing common law, there there is one thing that, that comes at the forefront that how did it came, it came into existence? At the times of the kings and queens, if we trace back the history of the England, we go back to the times of the kings and queens. Let's uh, talk about Magna Carta. Magna Carta is considered as the foundation of whether it be parliamentary supremacy or, 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 or it be uh, the rule of law. Both, uh, both of these, uh, well, Magna Carta is considered as the foundation of both of these doctrines. So at the time of the Magna Carta, when Magna Carta, why did Magna Carta came into existence? At that time, King John, uh, King John was the king of uh, king of the England, and he was he, he was levying he was levying some some extra taxes. He was going he was going completely um, he was levying extra taxes and he was go, he was using the powers arbitrarily. So the Magna Carta came into so the Magna Carta came into existence where the where the nobility or the noble class of the England asked the King John to sign an agreement that we uh, that we need some powers to be devolved to us so there is no arbitrary use of power so this arbitrary the this this uh, at this point of time this was around 11 uh, this was around late 11th or 12th century at this time England where where the entire where the entire world was still in in the dark ages england had already recognized that the arbitrary use of power is not the uh, is not the valid form of government so from here onwards it is started and right after when when the magna carta when the magna carta came into existence this whole thing went into the co uh, went into the sitting courts of the england i still remember uh, i still remember there um, there was a uh, there was a conversation between uh, between the representative uh, representative of the king and the in the English court at that time uh, and uh, and the judge that was sitting there. The judge asked the uh, the judge asked the representative of the king when he brought the message into the court. He asked the that representative that is the king above the law? Do we bow to his Majesty? Does the law bow to his majesty or does his majesty accept the supremacy of the law? The reply of the representative of the of the king at this time in uh, at this time uh, of the world where the absolute monarchy was the system of government around the world is, is quite alarming. The king's representative said the king respects the law. And thus he affirms the supremacy of the law. This was the time when it was acknowledged that the supremacy of the law is the core foundation on which uh, on which the future system of the government would go forward with. So after the existence of Magna Carta, the 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 whole thing went into the went into went into the process. Different acts and uh, different uh, different situations came in. There was English civil uh, there was English civil war, where, where which was between the the uh, the parliamentarians and the and the royal heads again on the same issue whether there is whether there should be the supremacy of law and the supremacy of the people or whether there should be the supremacy uh, of the king that is the appoint uh, the appointed head from the god. So 
the civil the english civil war happened the end of the civil war occurred uh, occurred as in the victory of the parliamentarians monarchy was abolished for for, for, for a small time oliver cromwell came in he established he established kind of a protectorate but then again uh, cromwell cromwell's own regime uh, kind of became authoritarian then he was removed then uh, then, then again the king charles uh, the king charles the second was enthroned but then this phase continued towards the point when the king james 2 became the king and he uh, he surpassed all of the uh, all of the king uh, all of the boundaries by levying extra taxes and so and i still and i as far as my knowledge serves me there was an act that was that is known in the history as the test act through this test act he uh, uh, he kept the higher offices for only the catholics and he um while while the majority of the population of the england the surprising thing the majority of the population of the england at that time was protestant but the king james is catholic and he kept the higher places for the catholics in the test act and he uh, he also levied quite a lot of quite a lot of taxes on uh, on the people so again here there is uh, arbitrary use of power so wherever you see in the history of england wherever there is arbitrary use of power there will always be the uh, some sort of friction some sort of opposition from the people from the parliament so this rose uh, gave rise to the most famous event in the english history that we still that all of the students of the llbr are familiar with glorious revolution or in other words the bloodless revolution of 1689 which gave uh, which gave birth to constitutional monarchy where james ii had to flee england and then and the army from the netherlands was invited uh, was invited in under the flag of queen mary the second and king william the king king william the third they were invited to take the throne and thus this gave birth to the constitutional monarchy which also gave birth to two historical doc uh, two historical documents bill of rights which is one of the most famous document uh, uh, famous document that supports the existence of the common law and the act of settlement thereby ending the uh, thereby the ending the supremacy to the supremacy of the crown over the law and over the parliamentary system here from onwards the common law started evolving in the progressive direction from here onwards the society, the society the norms of the the norms the rules and the regulations of the the norms rules regulations usages practices all of these things were taken into account and with the with the doctrine of rule of law they collectively formed uh, they could they collectively were giving rise to different uh, different and uh, different different judgments from time to time which led to the evolution of common law so as far as uh, now we have we did we just discuss the background of the common law i would like to put a question to uh, to both of you what do you think uh, do you think that the history has went into the right track for the evolution of common law or is there anything that should have been done or do you think that there the reason that the common law has um has been fully uh, has has fully evolved up until now is just because of the glorious revolution or do you think that there were there, sh there should have been a more decisive revolution in order to establish the supremacy of law today because even we know this that the common law no doubt is supreme in the uk right now but then again there is parliamentary supremacy which has the supremacy over the doctrine of the rule of law which is an uh, which is an undisputed fact so what is your opinion uh, opinion of both of you on this yeah i would well, like my to add very if, honest if rahim would uh, give me the permission. Would, 
Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go right ahead. Yeah, so it's com- I completely agree, you know, and in my opinion, I, 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 you know, I don't have any any sort of sentiments against the uh, bloodless revolution or some such because considering the history, wherever there were monarchy, the way they were abolished, the way they were, you know, frankly speaking, the way they were kicked out of their own country, it was pretty brutal and it was pretty, it, it was pretty in, in, in a horrific way, but. Let's trace back history, you know, 800 years ago when we have the father of common law and we all know who that father of common law was, Henry II. Now, if we trace back the reason why, you know, the, why uh, the system that Henry, you know, Henry established, why there was the need of it, it was because of his own beliefs, because he would at time believe, you know, that, you know, it should be law should be all equal to rich and poor and powerful and weak. And he came to believe that justice was not only a fair resolution of disputes and punishment of the wicked, but it was, you know, it should be an equal access to the justice as well. So with, you know, keeping that, that in mind, I would say that as far as common law that I see today is... I would say that it is completely fulfilling the the objective, the notion that you know that occurred that was coined and back in those centuries and today the common law we see has evolved to such extent that you know it is quite flexible. It's not rigid, but uh, I, I I have I have still have uh, lost the question. What uh, like what Muni was asking? Muni, can you repeat like what uh, what were you exactly trying to get at? Um, my my exact question is that do you think that a more mm-hmm. decisive kind of revolution was needed in order to establish the complete supremacy of the rule of law and the existence of the com- the supremacy of mm-hmm. or in other words sure. a more mm-hmm. decisive revolution was a more decisive revolution needed for the supremacy of common law in the United Kingdom or do you think no, that bro- it, the history has no. pointed into the right yes. direction? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, I totally, totally catch you. You, you, uh, you see. Just like I said, you know, considering all what happened to other monarchs in the country, if there was another, you know, another sort of uh, revolution, let's just say an alternative, you know, in another universe, frankly speaking, I don't think there, you know, the, even there was a chance of the survival of the monarchs. The fact that the, the, the version of common law that we have today, the, as we being a law student, the way we you know, learn about it, the way we study in in, uh, in our module, legal system and method, the way it is successful, the way the academics are still holding debates on it, the way some academics, you know, consider it, uh, praise its virtues, consider it the, the I would say, the best uh, provision that, you know, the legal system has ever seen in the world. I would say that is testament to the fact that, you know, anything more than that would have been either an exaggeration or maybe a system that would that would uh, that would you know that would have been again become a subject to another revolution so for me in my personal opinion i don't think that there should have been another sort of a revolution or there should have been another version of common law so for, no i don't think so as far as my opinion or my belief is concerned Well, that's a pretty good way of saying it. And if I'm going to give my opinion on that, it's that, well, to put it very, very simply, the common law or the system of common law that we know did not come overnight. It absolutely did not come overnight. It is the result of a very, very lengthy development process that has been so 
wonderfully illustrated by Muneeb. It's uh, composed of a number of building blocks that I believe should not be treated as isolated factors when they're rather much more important parts of a larger interconnected set piece because the common law, it's the result of a number of things. And yeah, while you could make the argument that a bloodless revolution is the more definitive factoring element, I do feel like, you know, there's a lot more to consider. There's a lot more to take into account, especially when you consider how the common law was not only formed, but how it has developed over time and how we've come to a point where we now recognize a very evolving and very flexible system of legal jurisprudence. Um, One thing I wanted to discuss and one thing that I thought was very, very pressing is the concept of codification and, you know, how the common law, you know, stands in contest to different systems of legal governance and, you know, different legal systems that are more intrinsically codified. We have a purely constitutional legal system here in Pakistan. There are many other nation states that do practice, you know, a a more constitutional, uh, a more constitutional, strictly codified system of law. And I wanted to ask what you think about that, Muneeb. Well, um, I'm glad that you asked this question, uh, Rahim, because um, my view is completely in the favor of a system that opposes the supremacy, uh, that, that has the common law as uh, at its center. Because if we compare the systems that, that have the constitutions of, with, uh, with all respect, I do respect the existence of, the co- uh, of a codified constitution, the sanctity of the laws preserved, but the constitution, we can't say that the constitution at every time, at every time in our, um, at every time it's going to reflect the views of views of the uh, of the public, because the first and the foremost thing, the rigidity of the constitution, it's uh, the difficult, the difficult procedure of the amendment of the, of the amendment of the constitution makes it, makes it quite, uh, what I should, uh, what I should in the other words say that uh, it does not reflect the the evolving nature of the society, the evolving norms of the society, what does society actually want? Because if you see in the common law, whereas whereas on the other side, in the common law system, you would see that whatever the judgments that the judges are giving, are they are the reflection? They are the reflection of the current uh, the, the current situation that is going on in the society. What is the public opinion of it? We can't say that the public opinion uh, that the uh, that the common law uh, is uh, is completely separated from the from the public opinion. How would I back this up? I would back this up in this manner that at the time there was a the, there was a time when the arbitrary uh, arbitrary use of power was considered uh, was. Uh, was considered by the by, by the common law as a as a, as a as a legal tool but right now the the cases and the case laws and uh, have established that the arbitrary use of power is not allowed so with the time the law is evolving with the time common law is evolving so that is the main uh, main advantage of the common law that it is flexible in nature but that to its flexibility is is curtailed by the mechanism that is within the uh, within uh, what I or I should say, the mechanism that is at the heart of the common law that is binding precedent. Now here the people would argue that okay, if there is binding precedent, then doesn't it makes it more similar to the rigid constitutions that we have in uh, let's say that we have in Pakistan, that we have in India, that we have in most uh, uh, most of the constitutional republics of the, uh, of the world. 
so doesn't it make more rigid but the thing is this that along with the uh, with the binding precedent people should uh, always uh, people should also remember this that we uh, at the common law we also have persuasive precedent also we also uh, which makes the common law more flexible in approach and with the, in order to counter this rigidity and stagnant nature of the binding precedent we have practice statement in the practice statement which has uh, the in which it was stated that whenever the house of law whenever the whenever the house of lords thinks that this is the time that they should uh, depart from the decision they will be allowed the house of lords or the current or 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 the current supreme court will be allowed to depart from the decisions if they think that such that going with that precedent or going with that decision will lead to absurdity or will lead to injustice so this here we see a a mechanism that is stable in nature that is flexible in nature that is working hand to hand with each, uh, 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 with each other and so, so we have the binding precedent we have the persuasive precedent and at the core we uh, and at the core, core of it we have the practice statement which controls the binding precedent and and the persuasive uh, persuasive precedent so no doubt the common law has the common law systems are will always be at more advantage the common law system of whether it be uk whether it be australia whether it be new zealand whether it be canada whether it be any commonwealth realm country common law common law countries will always be one step ahead of the constitutional republics because the common law can reflect the current norms of the society whereas the the constitutions that were made 50 to 60 years ago or 100 years ago they cannot reflect the evolving nature of the society that is very very interesting that is definitely very very interesting and uh, i would agree with you and i think it also goes to show that there are definitely systems of checks and balances that are in place in the common law or rather systems of checks and balances that have developed over time as a result of the common law you brought up uh, the practice statement as a very good example and the concept of binding precedent as it stands and you know keeping in mind the the importance of that kind of flexibility and how the system of common law allows for the law to develop as it is needed or as it may be necessary given the circumstances i do agree with you to the extent that the common law does pose a significant advantage over more strictly codified legal systems and that is that does go to show about why so many um lord justices in the united kingdom were so adamant on the common law or the more parliamentary system of the united kingdom being so vastly superior to that of other systems in the world and that is definitely saying something and it's not even far fetched to think that the united kingdom does follow a set standard that the entire world should to a good extent look up to or should aspire to move towards in terms of the way they the way they conduct their legal systems and the way that their courts operate it's definitely something to keep in mind and who's to say the possibility of that influence creeping in even in more strictly codified nations but then again that's all speculation at this point ali what would you like to say about all that do you have anything to add i i i would say that i don't have any opposing views to this because i completely completely agree with muneeb 
considering the you know the history let's see united states of america we have our own country you know uh, where, where we have this rigid constitution we cannot change it and the process of amending is really really tiresome consider the example of us gun laws consider how how hard it is to repeal it you can't even repeal it it you can't even repeal it you can't even amend it it's such a hard process that it's in 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 even pakistan i would even say that yes marib is right in this uh, in this uh, in this point that common law it evolves it reflects the values of the society from time to time because values do not remain all the same throughout the time so let's just say for uh, now the academics are considering and they are having this debate these debates in in in, in united kingdom that how that their judici- that their judiciary should be diverse they should be black people they should be homosexuals they should be white and people from among among the uh, other regions of the uh, uh, other regions of the world so that's for you that is common law let's consider the example of pakistan we have a constitution rigid if we have such constitution that i would not specifically pointed out that they are completely prohibiting some people belonging to other ethnicity or other religion who can't of uh, who can't be you know who are not eligible or who will not be holding any sort of you know official uh, government positions so as far as common law is concerned uh, you know uh, the codification is concerned i would say you know uncodified constitution of the uk and the common law system in uk that is that is you know i would say that is modern that is innovative it gives a chance of evolution it provides you you know a room and space for change uh, and it it it's really vast according to the society values it changes it's it i would say it is purely purely for the people whatever people choose to believe whatever people are holding you know sacred whatever they honor it whatever they uh, they hold whatever they dignify common law respects that as well as far as rigidity is concerned as far as constitutions are concerned for example if you codify any document it will be binding throughout centuries unless you are waiting for another revolution to come and you know and that code, uh, and that uh, document is null and void but revolution is not something that nations should be you know looking forward to so i uh, I, uh, i wouldn't add anything else but i would completely just agree with munib that yes common law uh it's the better system the establishment the the whole notion behind it that it has to be certain it gives a, a place of innovation evolution it reflects the uh, ev- uh, you know evolving values of the society yeah it it's it's uh, it's all there it's all there that's a very good point and i think to evaluate what you said you can definitely make the argument that the common law allows for a much more progressive approach to law making and interpreting the existing law what would you say about that yeah uh brahim can you repeat that i didn't catch you well based on what you said would you argue that the system of common law would allow for a much more progressive system of law making or a much more progressive system of interpreting the existing law 
Yep, exactly. I would also I would also argue that you know in light of the common uh, you know when there's uh, the common law, it it it, it although there is this system which Munib you know el- elaborated more on that there is a system of binding uh, authority that you cannot you know deviate from that. But aside from binding authority, you have that persuasive method as well. You know, so when what common law gives and this has to be you know this has to this point has to be appreciated that depending on the different cases depending on the different scenarios considering the uh, the difference between time common law does not you know dictate the binding precedent on every scenario or on, on every case that is coming in front of the in front of the court or if i should say in, you know even in front of the parliament as as soon as the times are changing values are evolving what they do they consider it everything uh, everything in a different manner what we uh, uh, you would recall you know uh, this is the most wonderful thing of being a law student you would recall that when we were studying the module of legal systems and method we were taught by our professors and we also read that you know every case is judged on its different merits law is not same for every every uh, like i would say every scenario there was an uh, there was this mechanism that if a case is being brought forward and there is a binding authority that is not necessary not necessarily that binding authority would be considered because if the you know the material facts are different that binding authority won't be considered at all there will be a new judgment so in relation to that i would say when times are changing values are evolving you know and there are different perceptions are coming different beliefs are coming different school of thoughts are coming it will be all welcome they won't be subjected to the codification of the documents they will be welcome they will be interpreted under that uh, under that common law and common law it's not a, it won't confine them to its boundary rather it will it will provide a room it will provide a space for it to flourish and take place so if it's mean to grow it will grow if it's if it does not have that uh, i would say if it's not that rich it won't grow at all so yeah i would say that yes here Maneep, would you like to provide a yes. evaluating note yep i would like to add few a uh, few more things here as rahim you talked about you're talking about here uh, the progressive approach of the common law yes i completely agree with the with this the with, uh, with the fact that it is undoubt uh, undoubtedly established that the common law common law is very progressive is in its approach now one must ask this question that why is common law so progressive in its approach the main so in the uk there are two systems of the laws that are working hand to hand with each hand in hand with each other there is a parliamentary laws that that are that that are being that are being made within the parliament then there is the other system that is known as the common law the common law's job is not only to make this norms and and the uh, not only to make make the norms that are that reflect the view of the society but their its job is is also to interpret what is parliament saying what is parliament saying because here we should not forget uh, forget this um, uh, main pivotal function of the common law in the united in the united kingdom that its function is to interpret the law but not to make the law that's that's what we all uh, we students of the of of the university of london we have studied in the lsm that 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 
there that the judges are there as to interpret the law if the laws are made they are only made in the in the uh, within the confinement of the parliament they cannot be made anywhere else so coming back to that point that how is common law progressive so common law is so progressive is progressive in nature because of the approaches of interpretation that it adopts for the laws uh, the, the the laws that are drafted by the parliament now here one must ask this question that why there is the need of any kind of approach to interpret the parliamentary laws aren't they direct aren't they direct enough don't they convey don't they convey the message complete, uh, completely by their words such as uh, such case uh, such as not the case in reality the parliamentary parliamentary laws they often leave such gaps that in order to in order to fill up uh, fill up those uh, uh, fill up those gaps as the helen rutherford a famous academic says the judges uh, the, the judges use the tapestry the tapestry of the common law to bridge the gap now one must understand according to her one must always understand that these approaches of the interpretation of common law the approaches of the interpretation of the common law that uses to interpret the the parliamentary laws are just a tapestry they are not something uh, that that should be called as an addition to the parliamentary law they are just there as an interpretation so following helen rutherford's point we have a literal approach that that goes into the literal meaning of the words that are present on the statute and identifies the purpose of a uh, purpose and intention of the parliament and then give, and then judges are bound to give the intention uh, uh, judges are bound to give their um, judges are bound to are bound to give effect to the intention of parliament but literal approach cannot always be applied sometimes you have to go into the more contextual approach so that is what we call the golden rule the golden rule of the of the interpretation through which uh, through which the judges try to go more into context to try to find the intention of the parliament then we have the mischief approach in which the in which they try to see that what is uh, what is the remedy provided what is the remedy provided by uh, by the by, by the by the parliamentary laws and then what is the what is the mischief in the law and then they look for the uh, remedy provided by the parliamentary law is there any remedy provided or or can there be any remedy provided by the common law so there are different different approaches uh, different uh, these are the main approaches that give the common law its progressive nature also with the progressive nature i would like to put in this point that some people would might argue here that can common law exist in peace with the codified constitution so here we can take the example of the existence of the common law in the canada also in the australia also in the new zealand also where uh, where there are no sorry not the new zealand canada and the australia because new zealand does not has the codified constitution so the canada if we take the example of canada and uh, australia they both have the uh, overwhelming overwhelmingly codified constitutions but there is the existence of the uh, there is the existence of the common law and the common law is doing the same job it is doing in the united kingdom it is uh, in, as in the united kingdom it is interpreting the law same in the in, in the canada and the australia they are common laws interpreting uh, interpreting the law, the constitutional laws in order to make it uh, more flexible ever evolving in nature and to point out to the uh, to, to the parliamentarians if, if the constitution is having 
absurdity in terms of the uh, the evolving nature uh, the evolving nature of the society so now i would like to go forward with the discussion that universal nature of the common law because the the main the the topic the topic of statement of today's discussion is that why it is considered as the achievement of the western civilization so common laws with biggest achievement is its universal nature now how did it came into uh, how did it existed how did it came into existence as a universal uh, universal in nature so the universal nature of the common law started with the with the rise uh with the rise of the british uh british empire with the rise of the british empire here i would like to connect the common law to an other institution in the united kingdom the unique relationship between the common law and the monarchy the common uh, the unique relationship between the common law and the monarchy is this that the common law considers the monarch the sovereign of the united kingdom the monarch who is the sovereign of the united kingdom as the fountain of justice where from it gets all the power from the common law in in the courts of the united kingdom we can uh, we, when we are entering the court uh, uh, any court of the united kingdom we would immediately see this this insignia of the of, of the sovereign uh, which states honi soit uh, honi soit queen uh, queen which uh, which in uh, which is a french uh, which is a french term which means that uh, evil be to uh, evil be to the person who thinks evil of uh, who thinks evil of which may, which it, which actually means in the term of of a french law maxim it means that the one who thinks evil of uh, the one who thinks evil of anyone will be held accountable under the law so the point is this that the that this insignia of the sovereign can be seen both outside the court and inside the court the relation the unique relationship of the common law of the and and the monarch is of this nature that the universal nature of the common law was established uh, established through the existence of the monarch as the head of a state of all of the commonwealth realms even if we see it uh, even if we see it today even if we see it today the uh, her majesty queen elizabeth ii she is the monarch of the 16 uh, of the 16 of the commonwealth realms today she is also the head of the commonwealth of nations which is uh, which is an association of free states uh, association of 52 free states now uh, one must ask that why why i am emphasizing the role of the monarch in the universal nature of the common law common law's universal nature is not only dependent on the existence of the monarch but it's also a dependent on the existence of the privy council privy council is is a body uh, in the uh, in the terms of law it is it is a body of councillors which are uh, those who are appointed by the queen to serve her in different different capacities when we come to when we come to the common law system privy council is the body of the senior judges that are appointed by the queen to sit in the privy council and to hear the complaints that are submitted by the estates of the commonwealth realms uh, Privy Council has the jurisdiction over certain uh, over the certain countries of the uh, of the certain countries of the of the Commonwealth realms. 
Privy Council is also the highest appellate court, uh, highest appellate court for, uh, for 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 some of the Commonwealth for, for some of the Commonwealth nations such such as Jamaica, such as Grenada, such as uh, the overseas territories of the United Kingdom also. So the existence of the monarch kind uh, kind of provides the universal nature because the head of a state. As a sovereign is the head of the state, she sits at the top and she can listen the complaints. For that, there is a system. The system is that of the Privy Council. Every person that every person or an organization or any individual that has any complaints against the state or against any organization, they can reach out to the Queen through the process of the Privy Council, and in which the judges are sitting, uh, and which in which they hear the case in the name of the Queen, and in which they give the judgment, which is then. Uh, which is then signed by the queen and sent to that uh, sent to that government or to that state to be applied. This uh, creates the universal nature, or in other words, I should say, I should say the applicability of the common law in the Commonwealth realms. So, so that the that uh, this uh, uh, backs the factor, backs my argument that the existence of the monarch is pivotal for the universal nature of the common law and moving forward moving forward with this that the universal nature of the common law the universal nature of com uh, the universal nature of the common law pro has progressed uh, has progressed in all of the societies of the commonwealth um, in the commonwealth realms and not only it ensures the separation of uh, not only it ensures the separation of powers it ensures the parliamentary supremacy it ensures the the existence of the devolved institu institutions in the united kingdom or in other uh, or in the case of the other countries such as the australia or canada their their state level institutions uh, their state level institutions so all in all according to me the you know uh, uh, according to me the common law <coughs> A sort of a, a sort of a mechanism that that provides the protection to the other doctrines that uh, other doctrines of the constitutions, be it parliamentary supremacy, be it separation of powers, be it royal prerogative, uh, be it the checks and balances system, be it the the relationship uh, the relationship between the federal government and the institutional governments, be it the relationship between the the central government in the United Kingdom in the Westminster Parliament and the relationship with the devolved institutions. So this is what my opinion is of the universal nature of the common law and how it protects the different doctrines that exist in the constitutions of the different countries. I would agree with you and I definitely agree with the idea that the common law of England and Wales is one of the most conclusive and intricately put together legal systems in the world and it definitely is a great achievement of Western civilization. That should go without saying. On that note, we're going to be concluding today's session. Thank you so much, Ali and Munib, for your wonderful insight and for your time. It's really appreciated. Thank you sure, so much, Rahim. For, thank, thank you so, you so much, much Rahim, for, for inviting us for this wonderful discussion.